In 2016, I went to a Facebook event, F8, which is their big developer conference in San Francisco. We stand for connecting every person, for a global community, for bringing people together, for giving all people a voice, for a free flow of ideas and culture across nations. I saw Mark Zuckerberg sort of make the case for his view of how Facebook was making the world a better place. And he was just generally really into the idea that connecting people together would fix really deep-seated problems in the world. It was all incredibly utopian. Connectivity will give everyone access to all of the opportunities of the internet. And he was talking about his great plans and how they were going to expand connectivity and connect more people and more communities and how bad it was that some people, guess who, wanted to build walls when in fact we should be building bridges. And it was all really laid on with a trowel. We can actually give more people a voice. And instead of dividing people, we can help bring people together. We do it one connection at a time. One innovation at a time. When I listen to Mark Zuckerberg here, he sounds really naive to me because I look at my Facebook page and it's just pictures of people's babies and people whinging about politics. And the idea that somehow like a screen full of people showing pictures of their babies and or whinging about politics is going to solve humanity's problems. Yeah, And the idea that like an engineering solution is somehow going to create emotional regulation among people, I don't understand that. I mean, it just seems crazy and completely goo-goo-eyed to even think that. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's it's the engineering fallacy, I think, that kind of connecting people up will resolve these conflicts because their conflicts must stem from the fact that they're not connected enough. Have there been previous times in history where we thought that somehow technology was going to end war and create peace? I mean, I think of technology as being so wrapped up with war. I think of like improvements in artillery, you know, as being technological advances that create more killing. Are, are there examples of us thinking that technology is going to end conflict? Oh, absolutely. Um, for example, when airplanes first showed up, people said that would lead to world peace because we'd all fly to different countries and see that we were all just the same and then there'd be no more war. They also said that airplanes would make armies obsolete because you'd be able to bomb them from the air and it hadn't occurred to them that you'd be able to fight one lot of airplanes with another lot of airplanes. What about radio and TV? These are some major communication technologies that were connecting the world. So I wonder if people thought they would get everybody singing Kumbaya together. Yes, it, it also happened with radio in the 1930s. There were lots of predictions that, you know, it would eliminate misunderstanding and lead to world peace. And then you get the same thing again in the 1960s. People said that the global village created by television would also reduce conflict. So you do seem to get this with every new communications technology. But when I was sitting there listening to Mark Zuckerberg, what I was most reminded of was a particular period in the 1850s and 1860s, when another American entrepreneur in his 30s set out to connect the world. From The Economist, I'm Tom Standage. And from Slate, I'm Seth Stevenson. Welcome to The Secret History of the Future. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. 
Starting in the 1840s, electric telegraphs spread extremely quickly on both sides of the Atlantic. This is, of course, sending messages down wires strung up on poles. And you can run those wires alongside railroad tracks and stuff. Sending messages across the sea is a bit more difficult. There were a few examples where people managed to get this to work in Europe. For example, you can run a wire from England over to France, only 20 miles. As long as you remember to put weights on the cable, it will sink to the bottom of the sea. And by 1852, it was possible to send telegrams between London and Paris. That's just a short distance, though. Spanning the Atlantic is a rather taller order. You'd have to be crazy to want to do that, and you'd also have to be incredibly rich. But as it happened, there was a young American entrepreneur who was both of those things. Well, I think the most interesting part of it is is the man who got it done, Cyrus Field, um, who was an extraordinary man. This is John Steele Gordon, a business historian who's written a book about Cyrus Field and the construction of the transatlantic cable. He was not a technology guy at all. He had run a very successful paper company. Cyrus Field was a self-made man who bought a troubled paper company, turned it around and made a fortune from it, benefiting from the boom in penny newspapers. He made so much money that he even paid off the cancelled debts of the company's previous owners, with interest. By the age of 34, he'd retired and was looking for something new to do. But he read about a cable between Sardinia and Italy, and he just suddenly he sort of looked at a globe and said, well, hey, why don't we put one of those things across the Atlantic? This idle thought turned into an obsession. In the 18th century, you you could count on it taking eight weeks to get from England to the United States. By the mid-19th century, steamships were making it in in about two weeks, which meant that's how fast news traveled. And um, they just thought this idea, if they could get this cable, suddenly communication would be instant, and the world would be a much smaller place. And um, they saw all sorts of business opportunities. They could, once you had a cable, you could operate in both the London and New York markets simultaneously. Uh, And that can be a profitable situation. Having raised the money to make the cable, Field realized he had a problem. The cable was too big and heavy to fit on a single ship. So he persuaded the British Navy and the US Navy to lend him a ship each. And he put half the cable on each one. The first two attempts to lay the cable across the Atlantic failed, and the ships were almost lost in a storm. By 1857, the project was running out of money. Field and his associates could afford just one final attempt. In 1858, the two ships met in the middle of the Atlantic. They spliced the ends of their cables together and steamed off in opposite directions. And this time, they succeeded. This was 2,500 miles long and less than an inch across. It truly was a a thread across the ocean. It was a tiny thread, but it was enough to allow messages in Morse code to be sent between Europe and America. And people went nuts. London was in communication with New York. They had an enormous parade up Broadway. They set off fireworks from the roof of City Hall, managed to set City Hall on fire in the process. There were processions in Chicago, Albany, Providence, Halifax. People were ringing the church bells. There were hundred-gun salutes in Boston and New York. People illuminated buildings. They marched in the streets. They preached sermons of thanksgiving. There were also a whole load of books that were rushed out to celebrate all of this. And one of them declared that it is impossible that old prejudices and hostilities should longer exist while such an instrument has been created for the exchange of thought between all the nations of the earth and there was also a lot of absolutely terrible poetry. Speed, speed the cable, let it run. 
a loving girdle round the earth, till all the nations neath the sun shall be as brothers of one hearth. The reaction was very similar to the reaction after the astronauts landed on the moon on, on July 20th, 1969. I mean, it was just an extraordinary achievement. And Queen Victoria sent President Buchanan a 99-word telegram. The Queen is convinced that the President will join with her in fervently hoping that the electric cable, which now connects Great Britain with the United States, will prove an additional link between the two places whose friendship is founded upon their common interests and reciprocal esteem. It seems like there's a pretty strong theme running through all these celebrations. And the idea is that by linking together the nations of the world, telegraph cables will inevitably bring about world peace. Oh, they thought that it might be the end of war because people would be able to communicate better, so they would talk instead of fight. And, you know, no ends of predictions. The trouble was, in the middle of all this euphoria about the promise of international communication, the cable itself had hit a snag. Well, actually, Queen Victoria's message to um, President Buchanan was a harbinger of what was going to happen. It took seven hours to transmit 99 words. Half the communication was the guy on the American end telegraphing back, what? Please repeat? Can't understand? It just didn't work very well at all. After about two weeks, the cable just went dead. What had happened was that the cable had been rather hastily made and the operators had overloaded it with high voltages and this fried the cable. When the news came out, people went from euphoria to embarrassment and anger. They were furious and they immediately began to say this thing, whole thing was a scam, it never took place. The British government held an inquiry. Eminent scientists explained that it wasn't necessary to use high voltages after all. Field had another cable made, and after some more ups and downs, Field finally succeeded in laying a fully functioning cable across the Atlantic in 1866. Well, the the reaction was a little more muted than it had been in 1858, but the the cable worked just fine. I mean, it it didn't take seven hours to transmit 99 words. Um, It became a commercial success. It was very expensive. Um, It was a dollar a word with a 10-word minimum, and $10 was a handsome workman's wage for a week. The cable proved so profitable that within a year, Field had paid off all the debts associated with its construction. At a banquet held in his honour in New York in 1866, he was described as the Columbus of our time. One toast was to the telegraph wire, the nerve of international life, transmitting knowledge of events, removing causes of misunderstanding and promoting peace and harmony throughout the world and the predictions of world peace resumed. But could a cable really do all that? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This old idea that connecting people with technology is a surefire way to end conflict has continued to flourish in the Internet age. In a speech he gave in the late 1990s, Nicholas Negroponte, who was then the head of the MIT Media Lab, 
flat out declared that the internet would break down national borders and lead to world peace. In the future, he claimed, children are not going to know what nationalism is. And in recent years, Facebook has been one of the strongest advocates for the idea of computer-aided peace. They've made this website called peace.facebook.com. And the idea there is to show how Facebook can bring people together across bitter divides. So the site tries to encourage online friendships between Jews and Muslims, or Turks and Greeks, or American liberals and conservatives. And in fact, I've called the page up right here, and I can see that in the past 24 hours, there have been 195,000 new friendships on Facebook between Israelis and Palestinians, and there have been 2.6 million between Pakistanis and Indians, and 140,000 between Ukrainians and Russians. Well, I guess all those conflicts are over then. Yeah, absolutely. Job done. Thanks, Mark. The thing is, though, Mark Zuckerberg, he keeps going on about how the internet is going to reduce conflict to bring about the world peace. He even went to the UN and gave a speech about it there. And he said, you know, a like or a Facebook post is not going to stop a tank or a bullet. But when people are connected, we have the chance of building a common global community with a shared understanding. So he really seems to believe this stuff. The trouble is, though, that this idea that connectivity leads to peace obviously isn't true. The Victorians' optimistic predictions were soon conclusively disproved. One thing that I think is interesting, especially about how communication was supposed to prevent war, um, when Britain declared war on Germany on August 3rd, 1914, the very first thing the Royal Navy did was send a cable ship over to the German coast, fish up the German cables and cut them. Far from preventing global conflict, the Telegraph played a key role in bringing America into the First World War in 1917. This forced the Germans to communicate to their embassies and what have you around the world um, by radio. And of course, the British could listen in. And this ended up having an enormous effect on World War I because um, they sent the famous Zimmerman telegram to Mexico, offering Mexico the return of its lost provinces, i.e. California, Texas, and what have you. If Mexico would declare war on the United States, should the United States declare war on Germany? The British got hold of this telegram, decrypted it, and shared it with America. And that's when Wilson went to Congress and asked for a declaration of war. In fact, telegraphs had been used for various military purposes during the previous century. Abraham Lincoln used telegraphs to coordinate troop movements in the American Civil War. And Prussia used the technology in 1870 to orchestrate a pincer movement during the Franco-Prussian War. And as for the Internet promoting worldwide peace, today it's far more associated with geopolitical conflict like the North Koreans launching cyber attacks or the Russians trying to hack the American election. These days, the Internet is one of the primary battlegrounds of interstate conflict, as countries infiltrate each other's networks and sow confusion and fear, all of which is only possible because of global connection. And it turns out that Facebook itself, whose boss is perhaps the greatest modern champion of this idea of techno-peace, can actually be used as a weapon— Every day, hundreds of Rohingya Muslims try to cross it. To Rohingya Muslims from Myanmar, often called the most persecuted people on earth. Nearly one million Rohingya people have now fled Myanmar, terrified for their lives. They've told stories of mass murder and rape and destruction. It's a tragedy that's been fueled by Facebook posts. It turns out that Facebook's tools have been used for years by Myanmar's mostly Buddhist military to encourage the ethnic cleansing of the mostly Muslim Rohingya people. Facebook says it's now taken down many of the accounts that were linked to the anti-Rohingya propaganda campaign. But some people argue that by failing to address the misuse of its platform, Facebook is complicit in genocide. 
It's worth noting that the reason all these terrible Facebook posts in Myanmar are even possible is directly related to Facebook's mission to connect the world. The company gives out Facebook and some other hand-picked internet sites for free in dozens of countries, including Myanmar. It's an initiative that Facebook calls Free Basics. It's often people's first taste of connectivity, and they end up considering Facebook and the internet to be the same thing. All of this has made Free Basics very controversial. Critics of the system say that free access to a limited range of sites chosen by an American internet giant is worse than no access at all. In India, Free Basics has been denounced as digital colonialism. It's a very naive vision of humanity to think that when you connect people to each other, the result will be peace, because history shows that when people get connected to each other, they fight. They they make friends and lovers and, and start new families and whatnot also, but they they do fight and they do have conflict, and that's a necessary part of humanity, it seems. Technology doesn't get to fix that. Nancy Bame is a principal researcher at Microsoft Research. She studies the role of communications technologies in people's everyday relationships. Humans seem to have um, some pretty strong in-group, out-group bias. And when you put people with people who are different from themselves, they often find things to disagree about. And that just seems to be inevitable. So we just have to recognize that when you bring people together, you're creating fertile ground for cooperation, but also fertile ground for conflict. And you need to understand that as a starting point and move from there. Bame thinks people are naturally combative and that connecting them through social media does nothing to change that. But in order for social media to not amplify conflict, she says companies like Facebook need to look beyond their engineers when they try to find solutions. These are really, really hard problems, and you're not going to solve them with people who know computer science really, really well. You're going to solve it with people who know people really, really well. And that's a very different area of expertise, and it's entirely compatible with computer science, but it's a very, very different field. Part of the problem is that there are elements in the design of social media that can make it really easy to stir up conflict. I think when we think about the vast number of people on social media, you're dealing with an awful lot of subcultures encountering one another. And I would say something that's different about it is the searchability. So the fact that you can go looking for a fight Right. So you see people or perhaps even bots searching public tweets for particular keywords in order to start an argument. So that's different. You know, it didn't used to be that you could walk down the street and hone in on somebody saying something you might not like and then intervene to start a fight. Whereas on Twitter, it happens all the time that you post something and you mention a person or a keyword and out come the bots and the arguers to tell you that you're wrong. It's like a great machine for instigation. Yeah, yeah, it is. But even when there are no malicious actors involved, the nature of social media is that a lot of the posts that are most likely to go viral are the ones that are the most divisive and that get people riled up. There's an old saying, if you want to draw a crowd, start a fight. Facebook has connected more than 2 billion people around the world now, But for all of Mark Zuckerberg's dreams of promoting world peace through togetherness, the reality turns out to be much messier. So why does this notion of peace through connectivity keep bumping up against the reality of human behavior? My background really is in um, study of monkey and ape and 
beyond that, even antelope behavior. I spent a lot of time working on antelope and really trying to understand how social life evolved in these relatively complex, socially complex species. Robin Dunbar is a professor of evolutionary psychology at the University of Oxford. In the 1990s, before the era of online social networking, he discovered something striking about the way brains are wired for social interaction. It all started when he began investigating why monkeys and apes spend so long grooming each other, carefully running their fingers through each other's fur. I was convinced that this had to do with social bonding. And so I set about testing that hypothesis. Dunbar realised that one way to test his idea that grooming plays a role in social bonding in monkeys and apes was to compare the size of their brains against the size of the social groups they typically live in. If grooming really is a kind of social networking between primates, then those that live in larger groups would need bigger brains to keep track of all the relationships within that group. If that's the case, then we ought to be able to show within primates the species that live in big groups have bigger brains and species that live in smaller groups have smaller brains. And so that is exactly what you see. So that, that suggests that basically in order to be able to support a large social group, you need a big computer to handle the relationships. In short, the brain is a social computer, and its size, specifically the size of the neocortex, the bit of the brain that handles social processing, scales up in proportion to the typical social group size. Tamarind monkeys, for example, live in groups of five or six, and they have small brains. Spider monkeys live in groups of 17 or 18, and they have large brains. And chimpanzees, our closest relatives, live in groups of 50 or so, and they have even bigger brains. And then all I did was say, oh, I wonder how humans fit into this. What you get is a predicted value of about 150, so a natural group size of 150. This number, 150, has become known as the Dunbar number. It suggests that our brains are optimised by evolution to maintain relationships with 150 other people. That number really is the number of people you have meaningful relationships that have history with. So they're the people, you know where they sit in your social world, they know where you sit in their social world. Their relationships of obligation, of trust, of reciprocity. And it turns out that this number, 150, pops up all over the place, from hunter-gatherer societies to the modern day. We see it in the Doomsday Book, in the average village size. It turns up in the characteristic size of many of the 19th century utopian communities that were set up in the USA, for example. Classically, actually, in the military, it's the average size of companies in most modern armies. Your personal social network typically is that size. What limits the number of connections that we can have? Is it just that our brains can't cope with any more people? In the end, two things do. One is obviously the size of your brain, which limits the, both the number of relationships you can have at a particular intensity, and your ability to manage these relationships. The other part of it that is really crucial is simply time, because maintaining these relationships and keeping them kind of well-oiled and smoothly working for you requires you to invest very large quantities of time. It sounds as though what you're saying then is that living in these mega communities, whether they're cities or enormous social networks online, is in quite a fundamental way unnatural. It is very unnatural, and our solutions that have allowed us to do it have really only been partially successful. 
they sort of work up to a point, but they're not uh, perfect solutions. We seem not to do any better online. So if you like, you know, the great promissory note on the tin can that came along with the appearance of Facebook, and those of us who are old enough to remember the uh, start of email, we had the same promise made to us then. You know, this new digital technology was going to open up whole new vistas. You would have in a greatly extended social world because you weren't limited to just the people you could talk to in the pub. Uh, and, you know, this social world would be distributed all around uh, the entire globe. But it seems that even on Facebook, typically most people only have somewhere between 100 and 250 friends. Is this sort of utopianism about new communications media, do you think that always happens? Oh, yes, but that's simply because, in general, these new technical inventions are invented by boys. And boys do not understand relationships. <laughs> I think you might be right. I can't think of a... I can't think of... Um, you're right, email invented by men, Facebook, a man, yeah. telegraphs, Telephone, all men. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> A study that Dunbar carried out a few years ago, looking at how men and women maintain friendships, found that it's different for men. What's ironic is that the bulk of the users of Facebook, of the telephone, etc., are women, because you know women's relationships and networks are created and serviced by conversation. Blokes' relationships are completely unaffected by conversation. What makes boys' relationships is doing stuff like doing a podcast together, Seth. Right, or waging war. But if Dunbar is correct, then the idea of world peace through connectivity is flawed in a lot of fundamental ways. If our brains aren't set up to connect with much more than 150 people, increasing connectivity means I can reach more people, but it doesn't mean I have real relationships with them. And communication systems are still predominantly designed by men and mainly used by women. So it's yet another reason to get more women into the technology industry. And conflict arises for reasons other than a lack of communication. It could be caused by ideological divides or by competition for resources. More communications won't resolve those kinds of differences and, in fact, could inflame them instead like it did in Myanmar. So, Tom, what should we do? Well, there have been some efforts to impose limits on communications tools so that they work a bit more like real-world relationships do. Uh, you may remember a social network called Path uh, that only let you have 50 friends. Uh, that didn't work terribly well, actually, and it recently shut down. Another example, though, would be WhatsApp. It's, it's recently reduced how many people you can forward messages to in one go. And they did this in India, where false rumors and fake news were, were spreading very quickly and leading to violence. So some people are talking about sort of slow social as a way to avoid some of the drawbacks of greater connectivity while still keeping the benefits. Because obviously a lot of good things can happen when you bring people together. I mean, say you're an LGBT teen who's living in a small town, you might feel less alone if you can connect with other people that you relate to on social media. You know, you can find your tribe. And there's lots of evidence of economic benefits too, greater access to markets, making up for bad infrastructure, being able to get access to educational resources and so on. I mean, there's, there's loads of studies that show that the more internet access and the more mobile phone access you have, the more GDP growth you get. So this is a very important tool for development. The main thing is to recognize that while connectivity can offer lots of benefits, it does have these problems too and not to overlook them. We have to find ways to mitigate the bad things in order to enjoy the good things. And we'd better figure it out because we're still laying cables today. One recent example was a cable laid across the Atlantic in September of 2017. 
Now, what I love about this cable is that, like the 1858 cable, it's about the thickness of a garden hose. But there, the similarity ends, because this new one has a lot more capacity. It can carry 160 terabits of data per second. And that's enough to stream 71 million high-def movies at the same time. But best of all, this cable was jointly funded by Microsoft and Facebook. Yeah, and the Microsoft-Facebook cable didn't make the news. You know, there were no parades, no 100-gun salutes, because we take global connectivity for granted now. It's a very different story from the time of Cyrus Field. But one thing hasn't changed. The old utopian dream that connectivity will end conflict just refuses to die. It's an appealing idea, but unfortunately, it's wrong. It's very naive, but um, it's not going away anytime soon, I'm sure. I'm Tom Standage. And I'm Seth Stevenson. The Secret History of the Future is a joint production of Slate and The Economist. It's produced by Bart Warshaw and Kate Holland. Queen Victoria was read by Anne McElvoy, and the Transatlantic Cable Poem was read by Jordan Weissman. The senior producer for Slate Podcasts is TJ Raphael. The executive producers are Steve Lichtai for Slate Podcasts and Anne McElvoy for The Economist. Thanks for listening. Next week will be the last episode of this season of Secret History of the Future. We really hope you enjoyed the show. If you haven't subscribed already, please do. And go into your favorite podcast app and review us and tell us what you liked. Let your friends know about the show. Spread the word. Uh, and we'd love to hear from you directly. Our email address is secrethistory@slate.com. Send us your plaudits, your criticisms, and anything else you want to tell us.